You're listening to Just Asking, where we discuss the subject that everyone wants to talk about without really knowing how to talk about it. Why do we human beings, who are obviously so sexual, have such a difficult time talking about managing this intimate part of our lives? We talk about managing our money, we manage our careers, our diets, and even our stock portfolios. Yet when it comes right down to it, we really don't know how to talk about managing our sexuality. And certainly, we don't know how to talk about doing it intelligently. So that's exactly what we talk about on this show. Welcome to Just Asking, a safe place where we talk about human sexuality. I'm Stephen Ng, and in my decades of working with people who have sexual problems, I've learned that we can all manage our sexuality better, more intelligently. So Stephen, last time we were here, we talked about how to take the meh out of your marriage um, to make it more interesting. But sometimes there are just it's over. The patient cannot be resuscitated. Um, you have said that you can tell within the first visit with a, a couple who come to you for marriage counseling whether or not that's true, whether or not it can be resuscitated. How do you? Yeah, I have said that. Now you're going to hold me to it. I am. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think, you know, with with the years of experience I've had and the, the pleasure of working with so many thousands of couples, I it'd be a little odd if I wasn't able to have some sense of who's going to be a great client and benefit a lot from therapy and who's not. So yeah, I can, I can pretty much tell. And fortunately for me and my, my little personal opinion, recent research uh, has validated some of my conclusions. So, um, would you like to share those conclusions? <laughs> well, uh, you know, it, I'm I'm always hesitant to talk about this because when two people come in for marriage counseling, it's not unusual for the therapist to experience that they come in for a lot of different reasons. Some people come in for therapy uh, with a really straightforward problem. They're a little bit stuck and they want a little bit of help and they're able to move on quite successfully. They make the therapist look brilliant. <laughs> they have a wonderful experience and the therapist can pat himself on the back. I really am a good therapist. I really am helping people. And then there are these other people who come in and no matter how much time and energy and tears we all pour into the experience, it's pretty much doomed to failure. So the question for me would be, if you came in with your partner for marriage therapy, would you really want your therapist to be the professional who at the end of the first session looks at you and says, well, I want to give you some feedback. The prognosis for this marriage is extremely bleak, and I think you'd be wasting your time, money, and energy pursuing marriage counseling. Is that, is that what you tell people, or do you ask them if they want the truth? Well, I, I, I ask people if they're open to hearing some, some very uh, personal feedback from me regarding their prognosis. Because I, I wonder, I, I did marriage counseling for three years. Not total, every summer. <laughs> <laughs> Something would happen in June, and then we would do marriage counseling for three months every summer. Okay. Um, until we finally got to the end when my ex-husband said, um, I'll do any, well, every summer, I'll change for you. I'll change for you. And um, after that third year, I said, why should you change? 
you know, if you're happy with who you are, why should you change for me? And that's when we decided that it was time to end. And I wonder if, you know, I had been going to see you, if maybe we would have saved those three years. Well, um, I hate to make it a cult of personality because I don't think it's just me. I think it's the question is any therapist who has the nerve to stop acting as if he were a surgeon or a midwife trying to save an endangered baby from a very difficult birth experience and, and instead to be the professional consultant who gives the couple the honest take on what's going on. And some people really aren't ready for that. They're not receptive. I, I have shared this, as a matter of fact, with some people who confronted me saying, how could I possibly know that so early in the, um, you know, in our relationship, and they would get up and walk out, and I never saw them again. Just to clarify, when you say save the baby, you're you're referring to the marriage. Yeah, in that in that sense, um, yeah, I got a, a bit ahead of myself because the metaphor there would be doing the arithmetic, counting up who are my, how many clients do I have in the room when a couple walks in. For I think some therapists, the number is greater than two. It it goes up to at least three because. The marriage is almost like a third person, a, a precious new life that deserves to live. And we need to do everything within our power to make sure that this baby survives. A lot like, you know, the poor, uh, the poor case of Terry Schiavo um, in Florida, where she'd already left her directives. They were very clear about what she wanted. Uh, her husband had the legal right to pull the plug. And then it became a years-long slog to see if we could save this woman who was already brain dead. And, uh, and it was a terrible debacle. So you're, so you're saying a marriage, a marriage could be already on life support at this point. That's and, exactly right. And the couple are fervently doing CPR and mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation trying to keep it alive, but maybe... Maybe we should just let go. Maybe we should just let go. So back to my earlier question, um, what are those signs? Like, what do you see when a couple walks into your office that, that you can tell this so readily? Well, the signs are as simple as they are hard to accept. You know, just knowing that they're very simple doesn't make us ready to hear the truth um, when, it, when it comes at us. Just like some of us who are in denial about family alcoholism, uh, in hindsight, it seems crazy that we couldn't accept the family member was an alcoholic or a drug addict. In the same way, I think people who are struggling with their marriage have all these dreams and desires that make it really hard to accept two very powerful truths that can sabotage or a marriage or make a marriage just sing with joy and satisfaction. So uh, the first one is knowing whether or not my partner holds me in contempt. Wow, that's is that that's, that's harsh. harsh. Yeah. yeah, so I need to, you know, and maybe a softer, gentler way of saying that is, does my partner respect me? And therapists like to use the word operationalize. We operationalize our terms by talking about behavior. So in the first therapy session, as the therapist is observing the couple, and, and finally gets around to saying, well, so obviously you two have something going on that you felt you need, needed some help with. What is that? And one of them will start explaining. 
And often in the very first therapy session, the, another question that comes up is, so how, tell me, how did you two first meet and fall in love? It really doesn't matter what the couple is saying to either one of those questions, because what the therapist is observing is the body language, that, which includes all the, all the movement of the body, but it also includes the tone of voice, the micro expressions in the face, uh, how people are inclining their body toward or away from one another. And when the therapist is seeing all of that, it's really easy to see whether or not they respect one another because they're making respectful eye contact, using a respectful tone of voice, talking in loving, caring ways about each other, or <laughs> are they rolling their eyes, um, sighing in an overly loud way, crossing their legs and turning away from the other person while he or she is speaking. And, and, and all of that makes it pretty obvious whether or not they respect one another. But somebody might, a couple things. Yeah, sure. Um, somebody might be very nervous about being there and might their body language be reflecting that. Somebody also might be angry about being there. Maybe they think their marriage is fine and they're getting dragged to marriage counseling and they don't want to be there. So could it be reflective of the experience rather than the other person? So if I understand you right, you're saying, could the therapist misinterpret the body language right. um, and not know the difference between anger, fear, and contempt? And if that's, boy, if anybody thinks that's the case, they need to get a new therapist. Okay. Because I think all of us know in our heart of hearts what's going on. You know, really, in any marriage, even a great marriage, anger is never a problem. Anger by itself doesn't mean that relationship got disrespectful. It doesn't mean it's abusive. It doesn't mean anything except that the person is angry. And anger is a very normal part of any person's life, even when we're running a great company or having a great marriage or with a great friend, uh, we can get angry. But contempt is a different thing. It's really directed at you specifically, whereas anger can be generalized about, oh, we're late for the movie or, gee, uh, that didn't work out financially or, boy, it really pisses me off when I never end up getting to do what it is I want to do. So that's different from that attack on the other human being where I just don't hold them in regard anymore. Okay. And it's pretty obvious, but as obvious as it, is, as it is, it's not easy to accept because if I'm in love and I really want my marriage to, to work out because of my religion or because of the children or because of some other personal uh, agenda that I have, or even just I'm the one who's still in love, and this person I'm with doesn't really love me, then I'm, I'm going to have a really hard time accepting that because it hurts. It, it hurts. It, yeah, I imagine. And I have a friend who was telling me that um, she got divorced for lots of reasons, um, none of which are this. But after she got out of the marriage, m numerous friends came up and said, yeah, he didn't treat you right. Or, you know, and, it, and it's not that he was abusive, but that he, this that he treated her without respect and, and all her friends saw it. Yeah, I think it's um, what I would call low-grade abuse. It may not be hitting or yelling or, you know, punching your fist in a wall, but it's rather obvious to all of us when someone we care about is not being respected. 
and when they're in the room with someone who holds them in contempt. So, gee, I mean, it's you could hardly imagine something that's more the antithesis of a happy marriage than that. And how do you undo that? How do you unring that bell once somebody has you, has you in a place of contempt? How do they ever come to respect you and hold you in high regard again? Well, they I, don't. Okay, so that was my question, is, is if we go to marriage counseling and our counselor says, yeah, this is over because you don't respect each other, you don't respect her, you don't respect him. And then they say, well, no, we'll fix it then. Thank you for identifying this. Now we know what to work on. Yeah, and the, the, unfortunately, okay, there's diagnosis, and then out of the diagnosis, hopefully we come up with a treatment plan. And then there's a prognosis as to uh, how effective does this treatment plan uh, usually turn out? And there is no treatment plan for taking a man who holds a woman in contempt or a woman who holds a man in contempt and then taking it to a place of mutual regard and respect. That, that really doesn't work. It's, it's as if we're trying to control the heart of another human being. Marriage counseling is, a, is a, a very demanding activity that requires the full participation of two individuals who are actually trying to work out a problem. But when I hold you in contempt, it's not like I'm trying to do that. I'm not trying to work it out anymore. So we're, we're doomed at the onset. And generally, uh, to finish my thought on that, those marriages are divorcing within a year. And so it's a relatively, relatively quick, painless death. So you had mentioned two things. One is contempt. Yes. And the other is rather obvious as well, and also difficult to accept. Sadly, a lot of people get married for a variety of reasons, including convenience, uh, money, uh, religion, so that they can have sex. Um, pregnancy. Pregnancy <laughs> is certainly one of them. And sometimes it just seems like the thing to do, the next thing in the list of, you know, well, I, I, I finished high school, then I went to college, now I've got a career, I should get married and settle down. Uh, but but the missing element is I'm just not that crazy about my partner. Now, a lot of people have an irrational belief that, well, I'll grow to be madly deeply in love. Or when confronted in therapy, they'll and ask, well, are you crazy about um, are you crazy about your partner? Are you are you crazy in love with this person? They'll say, well, I really care about her a lot. <laughs> or you know, I just, I just really respect him a lot, which is the antithesis of the contempt uh, theme we were talking about a moment ago. But they're not answering the question directly. They can't bring themselves to say it because if they did try to say it, it would have that false note that we all know when somebody is lying. Is it, is it realistic to be crazy about somebody after you've been with them for 20, 25 years, 10 years? Well, sure. Sure. I mean, that's a, that's almost a whole nother podcast and talking about how that would work out. But yeah, I've, I've seen a lot of marriages in my career where two people who have been together 20 years or more uh, still look at each other like they were teenagers in high school, just crazy in love with each other. And for whatever reason, some couples have that magic we could talk about it being uh but it has nothing to do with uh 
frequency of sex necessarily or um, that they are really romantic. It's just they found somebody they could really feel safe with to open their heart to completely. And that connection has been absolutely uninterrupted in all the years they've been together. So, so we've, and I think we've talked about this before. So they've managed to grow together. They've managed to stay crazy, about, crazy each. about each other. Because some people may have been crazy about each other at the beginning. Or thought they were. Or thought they were. Or it was a shallow-rooted infatuation uh, that really withered quickly. And that's why my mom said, never marry somebody quickly. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's crazy. I've talked to people who got engaged in the first week they knew each other and married in the first month. And that's just insane um, because infatuation will disappear over time when we're faced with the reality of who the other person really is. And so we need to give it some time to see really what's sustainable and what's not. You know, I'm a father, I have children, and uh, and I think, well, which of my children would I want to grow up to marry somebody who's really not that into them? <laughs> and I love all my kids way too much to hope that that would ever happen to any of them. And it doesn't have to be, you know, obvious to the world. Uh, they don't have to be holding hands in public. You can have two people who are very circumspect in their behavior, but at least when they're talking about their marriage, when they're looking at each other, we can all see that there's a really terrific connection that transcends just mere thinking. The alternative, if we're not crazy about each other, the alternative is really that I'm married to somebody I'm rather fond of and we're really good roommates. And we have kids, so we should stay together. And there was no there there. So who wants that marriage? I mean, who in their right mind signs up for something like that? I don't think anybody really wants that. I think in our heart of hearts, we all yearn to be fully known and, and adored in spite of and because of all that we are. So, um, and this may be a whole other podcast. Um, <laughs> so the whole staying together for the sake of the children thing. Yeah, not so good here in this case, because again, what you know, we ask, you ask, what am I modeling for my kids? Maybe in the 19th century where women couldn't make the living that they can today in the 21st century, maybe, maybe staying together for the sake of the children would be good because the alternative might, have, might very well have been poverty. Um, but I think in this modern era, at least you know, in, in the United States, I think the idea of staying together only for the sake of the children conveys a message that when you're an adult, your needs and feelings really don't matter anymore. Wow. And it's not important for you to be loved. It's important for you to sacrifice your happiness for the sake of your children. And that's not really the model I want to set for my children. I don't want my children to grow up to be that kind of an adult. And I'm guessing that the children on some level know. Oh, we all know. You know, we all know, and it's it's a an obvious truth and an, and an uncomfortable one, but if it's what you grow up with, you get used to it. You get used to it, and you internalize it, and you learn, and that's what marriage is. Right. Which is actually, I think, one of the reasons why, although, you know, it's funny, because the divorce rate has gone down over the last few decades, 
part of the reason for that is fewer and fewer people are getting married. And marriage is growing less popular. And I think people who grow up in a family where marriage is meh, yeah, they, they, they don't really have any excitement about growing up and getting married. Why would they? So let's come back for a second. You said that the contempt one cannot be fixed. Um, patient is DOA. But the being crazy about a person, it seems like if, if I'm the person who is not crazy about my partner, and maybe it's because I just haven't been paying attention. Maybe I'm busy with work and kids and everything else, and, and a therapist tells me that I'm the problem. Shouldn't I be able to fix that? Well, it's you know as if you're preoccupied with work caused you to fall out of your crazy in love feelings when actually it's probably the other way around. You weren't very satisfied with your marriage and you sublimated looking for other things to fill that empty space in your heart. And so you became more engrossed in your work or more engrossed in rearing the children or in uh, other activities like recreation, like you know, becoming a, a marathon athlete, and that became uh, the fascination of your every waking moment. Some people do that instead of really enjoying a really satisfying relationship. And can that be fixed? Well, the evidence is no. I mean, research would indicate those, those couples also get divorced. It's just that it takes a much more miserably long period for uh, them to come to their senses and realize this is not what I want. So we're talking 10 and 20 years before finally they can accept, oh, she's just not that into me. And then the question is, how long do I want to live like that? Do I want to spend the rest of my life staying with a cordial roommate who's just not that into me? It's hard to stay married to someone who's just not that into me because as we go through our lives in this world, other people are into us and they do fall in love with us, whether we're married or not. And even if we choose not to have an affair, it's really hard not to be attracted to that love that the other person is expressing for us. So we may be very circumspect in our behavior and never have an affair, but we can't deny that that pulling at the heart that makes that other relationship that other with that other person look far more satisfying, far more interesting. Or even just watching the the relationship of some friends who are really crazy in love with each other. And I look at them and, and maybe first I'm thinking contemptuously, geez, why don't they get a room? What's wrong? Up, quit putting on such a show. Yeah. The big fakes. And, and then after a while, I, I come to realize they're not putting on a show. This is just who they are. And gee, I want what they're having. And that's, that's painful. It's painful to, to see that. So again, uh, that can't be fixed if we can't make somebody fall in love with us who's not. And can we, well, you know, the therapist, and, and here's the dilemma sometimes for the therapist. We have this technique where uh, it's called paradoxical intervention, where we tell the couple it's hopeless. And the couple that seems hopeless digs in, uh, reaches down way deep, and then they go on to make their marriage last and endure for decades after that. Ha ha, Mr. Therapist, you're an idiot. You didn't know what you were talking about. But 
that's it's pretty rare and usually when a couple does end up staying married even though they don't really have those kinds of feelings for each other or at least those feelings aren't reciprocated by both then they end up in a kind of a marriage that could endure 20 40 50 years or more but it's not the kind of marriage any of us would really want for ourselves or for anyone we love so um let me ask you this so people, a lot, oftentimes people will come and talk to me, um, and I think it's because I've been single for so long they've decided that I know something. Um, but they'll say um, that their marriage is in trouble. And, and a lot of times it is, you know, I'm thinking about getting a divorce. And, and the first thing I say to them always is you should go to see a marriage counselor, even though I might think that they're going to get a divorce because I can see the signs. But I'll say, you should go see a marriage counselor. And one of the reasons I tell them that is because if their marriage is truly over, it's nice to have a professional help you do that. Oh, absolutely. And there are other issues there, too. I mean, my ther- let's say I have enough trust for this professional. In fact, let's say we both do, that we both concur with the opinion that, let's say, okay, he's not that crazy about me or she's not that crazy about me. And there's a meeting of the minds, and we finally go, oh, wow, that hurts, but yeah, I think you're right. Would we necessarily stop therapy at that very moment? No, there are a lot of reasons why someone might continue, not marriage counseling, but at least some counseling regarding uh, how can we best handle the children? How are we going to debrief from this catastrophic catastrophic? How are we going to debrief from this catastrophic epic failure in our lives where we work so hard to make a relationship work only to find out it was the wrong relationship? And uh, it's, it's like I, we t- intended to fly to Paris and the airplane took us to Paris, Iowa instead. And so how do we recover from that? And because it's, at some level, there's some self-deception going on. I kidded myself that this person respected me. I was totally pulling the wool over my own eyes when I thought this parent, this person was really crazy about me. And why was I so needy that I was willing to settle for something less than what I really wanted and needed? Well, and, and for me, in the three years of marriage counseling, even though when I started, I was pretty sure we were done. Um, but what I got out of that three years was insight into myself. Absolutely. And the things that I was doing to hurt the marriage and the things to do differently better next time. Hmm. So, so, but what you're saying is that doesn't need to be marriage counseling. Like I could have gotten that on my own. Absolutely. And, it, but you know, it, it, every situation is a little bit different. And if you had two people who are at least mutually very fond of one another and they found it helpful to work together as they were getting through their problems, that's a possibility. But in general, once we've spent years working with someone trying to make a marriage work and we realize they really are not in love with us, uh, we don't want to stay in the same room with them. Right. And, and I think that's quite understandable. And, and the better work, I think, is to be done alone with a therapist taking a review of my life. Like, how have I ever done this before? And what do I need to do to prevent my doing this in the future the next time around? Will there be a next time around? How do I feel about the whole idea of intimacy? How am I going to handle my life as a single parent? You know, the, there's just a lot of questions that anybody might have. 
even in the best of circumstances, even without any kind of mental illness issues or substance abuse problems or domestic violence. And, and you know, it's, it's rather ironic that in our culture, we say the family is the foundation of our civilization. Everybody says that. The politicians say that. Our religions all say that. But virtually nobody is giving us practical relationship advice that would train us to think of this in technical terms as if it were technology, say relationship technology, that would help us to navigate some of our feelings and to answer some of these questions for ourselves. And I, I think when friends see these truths, you know, it's dodgy for friendship as well, because sometimes to save a relationship, I have to risk the relationship. And, and risking anything like that means I could lose this person as a friend. So what do, you, what do you do as a woman when your girlfriend says, you know, I'm just having marriage problems and you've known for years that her husband doesn't really respect her or that he's really not all that in love with her? Right. And you can see that. And, and how do you say that without testing the, the limits of your friendship? Well, it's the same for therapists. You know, I, I think every professional I've ever talked to, whether it's a doctor, a lawyer, or an accountant, or any other kind of professional, they're, they're often conflicted over how much truth to speak aloud to their client. But because it's a professional relationship, I think the ethical obligation is to, to give the client the truth they're looking for and that they need. And I know that if I were in that client's position, I would want to know from a professional who works like this, I would want to know what are the chances of our success. I wouldn't want to spend three more years of my life pursuing and working on a relationship that really was DOA from day one. Well, and again, you're not saying, I don't think, that <laughs> therapy isn't necessary. You're saying that marriage counseling isn't necessary because the marriage, the, the third person in the room, is DOA. But the two people obviously have their own issues and both of them probably would benefit from counseling. Well, yeah, and I do think exactly that, that when, t when a couple walks into my office, I have two clients and only two clients, not three, and my loyalty is to the hu two human beings in the room, not the intellectual construct we're calling their relationship. So for me, it's not about saving the baby, the metaphorical baby here. It's about really being of service to my clients. And I think for a lot of therapists, this is difficult because they confuse their role with that of clergy and, and they do want to save the marriage. I think a lot of therapists also, you know, frankly, have their own issues and their own romantic uh, opinions. And they just want things to work out. Don't we all love a happily ever after ending? I know I do. And but but the fastest way, I believe, for all of us to get to a happily ever after ending is to understand what we're doing wrong. Well, and, and one of the things you ta were talking about, the family being the foundation, um, because you divorce somebody, you're still, if you have kids, you're still some, some form of family. You're co-parenting. You're co-parenting. You're going to be co-grandparenting. You know, you have all the things for the rest of your life. So, so again, getting professional help to advise you on how to do that. 
Yeah, so that at least we can be a functional team of co-parents. Wouldn't that be great? It would be awesome. Yeah, and a lot of people really, you know, sadly, uh, a lot of marriages uh, don't work out. But a lot of divorces don't work out for the same exact reasons that the marriage didn't work out. We can't talk. He doesn't respect me. We can't seem to ever get along. And when those problems exist in the divorce, you you end up having the same problems you had in the in the marriage, and often the outcome is exactly the same. So, you know, it's wonderful when divorced people can co-parent effectively and put the children first and move on with their lives. But we've all seen the uh, terrible exceptions to that that are just heartbreaking, where he's still grinding away at her, resentful for her finding love with someone else, or vice versa. Right. So, um, and we've talked about that before on another podcast about um, co-parenting, and we've, I'm guessing we will again, oh, since yeah. this is such a big issue. Um, but this has been really, really interesting, and it would be interesting for people to chime in and share whether or not they would want their therapist to to be this honest in a first in a first visit. Yeah, I think it's a it's a very ballsy move for any therapist to just put that out there, because quite often what it means is the couple says well, thank you very much. If you can't believe in our marriage and what we're trying to do here, then we're going to look for someone else. And that's the end of that income stream. It's like a lawyer talking to two parents who were thinking about taking out a second mortgage on their home to pay for their son's legal fees when the lawyer knows very well and good that there is no case because the boy already confessed on videotape (laughs) to the police and there really is no defense there. It's just a matter of going and pleading him guilty and maybe negotiating a few small things, but it's not really a, there's not really a case. Jackie, it's been really good talking about how we can tell when a marriage is over. Uh, I'm looking forward to our next talk. Thanks. So am I. Thank you, Stephen. You're welcome. Bye now. This has been a production by Ing Intellectual in cooperation with Estepona Group. Interview by Jackie Shelton. Music produced by Octophonics. Editing by Lucas Pichelli. To listen to more episodes, visit stephening.com.